For me, stress science is both informed by the worldview of Buddhism, as well as validating so much of what we already know from wisdom teachings. And it centers around control and uncertainty. So when we think about trying to understand dependent arising, causes and conditions, and the interdependence, the network of complexity that we live in, it's very humbling to realize how much we don't control. And contemplative wisdom, mindfulness-based stress reduction, helps people, helps them understand what they can and can't control, including their own response. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Today, I'm speaking with contemplative health psychologist and stress researcher, Alyssa Eppel. Alyssa is professor and vice chair of adult psychology at the University of California, San Francisco. And she studies how mindfulness, meditation retreats, and breathing techniques can help buffer stress and biological aging to promote both physical and mental health. Alyssa and I get into some interesting territory in this one. We start with the early roots of her interest in the mind-body connection and how she's come to study stress through the lenses of both the mind and the body, and also how she's brought contemplation into the research. Then we get into the central role of uncertainty in stress, how we can learn to deal with it, and how it shows up in our bodies. Alyssa describes the acute versus chronic stress responses in our body and why we might want to intentionally induce acute stress to boost our health. We talk about cell aging systems, specifically telomeres, which Alyssa has done some fantastic research on. And then we get into contemplative practices as a way to reduce stress. We talk about how our minds influence our very cells and the concept of cellular safety. Along the way, Alyssa shares some of her research on rest, retreat, and vacation, and also how contemplative benefits can transfer to the next generation. She also reflects on what it means to have a sensitive nervous system and the importance of focusing on joy and gratitude. As always, if you're interested in Alyssa's work, there's more information in the show notes, including a link to her latest book, The Stress Prescription, which I definitely recommend checking out. It's super accessible, yet at the same time, cutting-edge science, and it's full of useful tips and practices to help you manage stress in your life. Stress is something we all deal with, like it or not, and I'm so grateful to Alyssa for her rigorous and broad-ranging work in this domain and for putting this wisdom into the world in a way that can reach so many. And Alyssa is not only full of knowledge, but also warmth and heart as I think you'll hear in this conversation. All right, with that, it's my great pleasure to share with you, Alyssa Apple. It is such a pleasure to be joined today by Alyssa Apple. Alyssa, thank you so much for being here. It's such an honor to be on your podcast, Wendy. Thank you. I'd love to start with a little bit of your own personal story and how you ended up doing all of this amazing work that you do. So how did you get interested? What drove you towards medical research, stress research? And then where did the contemplative side come in? It's really easy to see the roots of my interest from an early age, partly the home I grew up in, the place I grew up in. At home, meditation and self-growth were common, respected dinner topics. So my parents were both trying 
TM meditation, and then they got very into EST. And uh, they always shared this with me and my sisters. And they just mixed that in with their Judaism. And they really just loved spirituality. They were very open-minded. And I would say that a family characteristic was openness to new experience. My father was a biologist, and we spent most childhood summers in science camp. Oh, fun. <laughs> and usually it's, it was marine biology. So usually we're in an ocean at a beach looking at animals and pondering how different organisms live and survive and thrive. And then my mother was a therapist when she was working. And so I really did just combine interests of the mind with interests in how biology works and how our body works. That's awesome. And so did you kind of always have a contemplative practice or when did that come into like your research space? I always was curious about the mind. And so as a young child, my older sister, who is someone I'll call a seeker, who is really trying many different traditions and practices, brought me to some different classes that were movement classes like Tai Chi. And I remember feeling the tingling in my hands strongly and quickly and just saying, wow, there's mystery in this body and really wanting to understand the mind-body connection. So that came very early. I went to college thinking, of course, I'll become a doctor focused on healing and the healing relationship. And in college, in addition to pre-med classes, I fell in love with psychology and the science of the mind. And one of my influences was a class by Robert Sapolsky, mm -hmm. who just showed us example after example of how we are really monkeys in clothes. Not just how much our beliefs shape biology, which led me to this interest, but how biology is so powerful in shaping the mind and how limited our free will is, something I still struggle with. So it was a humble view of humans that really filled me with awe and curiosity. So I just have great respect for biology and the mind and how they're intertwined. And I would say out of every scientific paper I've written over you know, 25 years, it's always about both. It's always the link. Mm. So I chose health psychology and I have shaped my path toward what I'll call contemplative health psychology. And that has been so heavily influenced by my deep exposure to both contemplative practitioners, contemplative scientists, mostly through mind and life, actually. Mm. In early 1990s, when I was in graduate school at Yale, John Kabat-Zinn came to speak. And it was just such a landmark moment to have meditation validated at this medical school and have a huge packed room and all the excitement that comes with hearing John Kabat-Zinn. And I took my first MBSR class way back then. And that is really the beginning of studying this. And then when I went off to my internship, my clinical psychology internship, I was just so excited to test meditation with health problems. So I got to develop a MBSR type class for veterans with diabetes. And it was some support, some goal setting, but a lot of meditations 
warm meditations with kindness and teaching them breathing. And it was so different than what they got at the VA at that time. And they just felt so grateful. Many of them really appreciate it. And many of them really got better. One of them, I'll always remember, had a, an ER episode during the class because he was using the same amount of insulin he always had. He had type 1 diabetes, yet it became too much. Oh. And he had a crisis and went to the ER. And that was just such a dramatic example of, well, what else was happening? He was managing stress better. And that means he was managing glucose better and he needed less insulin. So an right. example of possible benefit from the class. And so from that, just seeing the tangible benefits for some of these people, I went on to spend probably the next 15 years working on trials, applying mindfulness skills, mindful attention, mindful stress reduction, mindful eating for weight loss, for diabetes, for improving metabolic control. Hmm. So we've done a lot of NIH trials and have learned a lot since then. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to that because I think those are some really um, amazing findings because now you have some longitudinal work coming out of that too. But first, I'd love to dive into just stress in general. So much of your work has focused on stress. And so I thought it might be helpful, even though that's a concept that I think most people are familiar with colloquially, and we talk about stress and uh, how we're feeling it. But I'm wondering how you define it, you know, from a research perspective or how the field defines it. I think people can have different perspectives about whether or not they're actually, you know, feeling stress. So it is a little bit of a slippery concept. So can you talk a little bit about it and then, you know, how that manifests in our bodies? Yes, stress is definitely worth defining. Stress just holds a lot of mystery because stress pretty much is an umbrella term for everything, anything that perturbs us, challenges us in a threatened way or positive way, and how we respond, what emotions we have, how we regulate them, how our body responds. So it's really quite a rich area to study, and it means different things to different people. The way that I think about stress is very simple. So first we have our judgment of whether we're going to be stressed. And I'm going to say not just our mental judgment, but our body judges. So we have this, what we call primary appraisal, a first triggered stress response. This can be unconscious. The nervous system in the body is fast and automatic and conditioned to triggers. So we're getting signals from our body all the time that can be stress signals. And then of course there's the explicit conscious stress response, which we think of as the primary appraisal is, is something, am I in danger? Is something wrong? Do I need to do something differently? And then there's the second response. And that's where things get interesting, which is, can I cope? Do I have what it takes? Do I have the resources that I need for the level of demand? And it's that secondary appraisal that keeps us so busy. Because what that means is, whatever is happening externally, whatever conditions, whatever adversity, it's what we make of it. It's how we're interpreting it, how we are assigning meaning to it that determines how big of a stress response we'll have and if we have one at all. And this I like to compare to understanding stress from a Buddhist perspective. 
because we have, of course, the first noble truth of dukkha, the adversity inherent in life. So that can be thought of as the first arrow. We all suffer from the first arrows. And then there's the second arrow, which is how much do we stress about stress? How much do we suffer from the adversity? And so how do we manage that second arrow is really what stress management is about, how we manage our relationship with stress. Mm. So for me, stress science is both informed by the worldview of Buddhism as well as validating so much of it, so much of what we already know from wisdom teachings. And it centers around control and uncertainty. So when we think about trying to understand dependent arising causes and conditions and the interdependence, the network of complexity that we live in, it's very humbling to realize how much we don't control. <laughs> and that's been one of the most important things in how contemplative wisdom, mindfulness-based stress reduction, helps people, helps them understand what they can and can't control, including their own response. So we can influence the small things around us, we can set fertile conditions for outcomes, but we never control outcomes. We don't control what we think we do. And that is unbelievably helpful to remind ourselves of that at any moment. Because so much of stress, it's like pulling on their conditions that we don't want in our life. And we work on them, even unconsciously, they're taking up mental real estate. And when we're trying to problem solve them, I like to think of it as pulling on a rope, but the rope is attached to a boulder. And so it's taking all this energy, our hands get chafed, we're spending mental energy, but we can't move the rope. And so if we can just remember to drop the rope, that it's not the rope that we can change, it's our response. Mm. So one thing that has absolutely fascinated me is how much our individual differences matter about how we view the future. Our worldview about how much we control the future is tied into how much we believe, truly believe, that the future is inherently uncertain. Uncertainty was such a buzzword during the pandemic. You know, everything felt uncertain and we could, it was tangible. So in the West, our worldview of how things work is that we should control things. We love certainty, we love control. And when we really fixate around that and want control and want certainty, that leaves us absolutely vulnerable and open to anxiety and even depression. And so I've started measuring the tolerance of uncertainty that individuals have. And during the pandemic, people who felt intolerant of uncertainty, so really, for example, felt very uncomfortable when they didn't know what tomorrow would hold, when they couldn't predict the near future. That predicted much more fear of COVID, pandemic, PTSD symptoms, and even climate distress. So we do know that the more we can relax around uncertainty and embrace it, that is part of the ability to live with adversity, live with not knowing. And that for me, I've really learned through meditation, through Dharma teachings, not through reading psychology papers, mm. but they do validate it. They do really support, wow, we can actually measure this. How much are we tightening up around that feeling of not knowing. 
What are some ways that you like to kind of help retrain ourselves to become comfortable with uncertainty? Because yeah, I, I hear you. That's such a core skill that and it does come oftentimes out of the meditative process. One practice that I think is helpful is simply checking in with the body because the body is storing up intolerance of uncertainty. The body is tensing, holding, feeling vigilant. And so we might not be aware that we're worrying or that we're bracing or what we're carrying. So much of it's unconscious, but the body knows. And so checking in with the body's energy, with where we're holding tension in our physical body, and then trying to name that, breathe into it, release it. That simple practice to me is really important. It's a way at naming the uncertainty. And we know that once we name different emotions and we improve our emotional granularity, that really changes, changes everything. For one, instead of feeling this kind of dark cloud of, I feel stress or I feel overwhelmed, that's an alarm signal to the body. That's saying something's wrong, but you don't quite know what. But once you start naming it and getting more granular or rich information, then I feel like it disempowers the stress response. It lets us feel ease. Mm. I love that idea of, um, as you were just saying, the tension in our body is where we hold um, uncertainty. Is that kind of what you were saying? Mm -hmm. Because it's vague. Right. What is uncertainty? <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting to me because I always think about tension in the body is, I equate that to stress and maybe uncertainty can also be equated to stress somehow. But I, I think that's an interesting mental shift to think about uncertainty in that physical form. What you just pointed out is a really important difference and similarity between uncertainty and stress. Mm -hmm. So when we have stress there is an object or a target. We know what we're stressed about. There's some identifiable threat, either a thought we have or a situation. But uncertainty stress is much more vague. And so we can't often name exactly what's bothering us, what we're holding, what we're worrying about. But this practice of saying, what am I holding expectations about? What am I worrying about? What do I feel uncertain about? helps us identify that more pervasive, loose anxiety that's harder to target, but that we carry around. So when we think about stress reduction, we so over-focus on there's an event, how are you gonna cope with it? The event takes up just a little bit of time usually, and then we tend to recover, but the rest of the time is when we're carrying around our stress habits, rumination, unconscious stress, intolerance of an uncertain future. And so that's an important part of our day to target. So when we think we're relaxed, we're not as relaxed as we could be or should be. And that's an important practice to then look inside and say, what's there right now when nothing is really wrong? <laughs> nothing is demanding my attention to cope.
What you were just saying um, is reminding me of the difference between our body's acute stress response and a chronic stress response. Could you maybe unpack that a little bit? Yes, that is probably one of the most important distinctions in understanding stress and its effects on health. So we know very well now that chronic toxic stress, when we have situations that are ongoing, that we don't have the resources to cope, or we're just really wearing down from because we're not doing self-care, that is what accelerates our biological aging. Whereas acute stress to an event in the moment is a beautiful biological event that we are exquisitely well-equipped to deal with. So we mount a stress response and we recover. And in the recovery, we actually turn on a lot of healing or salutary responses to clean up, clean up the mess from stress. So in the cell, that means autophagy, cleaning up all of the metabolic products of having dealt with stress. And we clean up better than we were in the first place. Hmm. So it turns out that when we expose ourselves to short-term acute stressors in the body, we're actually leaving our cells more fit. I like to call it stress fitness instead of aerobic fitness. And the cells respond to future stressors in a more resilient way. They're quickly reacting and quickly recovering. And in the meantime, cleaning up all the junk like free radicals. So one of the important ways that we can use that to our advantage is really focusing on the beauty of stress, the positive stress response in our body, as well as how it helps us grow, how it challenges us and helps us make meaning and really can lead to more post-traumatic growth or more thriving in life. And when we focus on that, those benefits of stress, that actually has this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where we have a better, more healthy stress response. We don't have this kind of threatened response where we overreact, but we have more of this challenge response which energizes our body in a different way. Instead of vasoconstricting all of our vessels, preventing bleeding out and other things, we're actually having a tremendous amount of cardiac output to our brain. So blood is more efficiently going to our brain and oxygenating it. And in studies, when people induce more of a positive challenge response instead of a threat response, people actually perform better and they feel more positive emotions, excitement, hope, enthusiasm during the stress. Yeah, in speaking about that, uh, the way our bodies respond positively to that kind of acute stress, um, I know you've done a lot of work on exercise as well in terms of stress. So can you share how exercise and maybe some other um, methods can help us by intentionally inducing that acute stress? Yes, that is a great question. And since we know that positive short-term stressors to a cell or to a mouse actually creates longevity, the question is, well, how do we harness that for humans? What is good for our body? So the best example is aerobic exercise. And in fact, rather than thinking endurance exercise is the gold standard and what we should all work toward, it turns out that short bursts of aerobic activity, like high-intensity interval training, is 
a really good model of this type of positive stress or hermetic stress, where we turn on the stress response and then we turn on recovery and the cleanup crew afterward. So it helps with our mitochondria and it, of course it helps with our cardiovascular fitness, but it also helps shape up our emotional stress response. So physiologically stressing out the body repeatedly in a fitness way can actually lead to more healthy emotional responses to stress and more quick recovery and less rumination. So we know that when we compare exercisers and non-exercisers, but we also know that from fitness training studies that anyone who goes through, for example, a aerobic or high intensity interval training will end up coping with emotional stress in more of a healthy way. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what's so fascinating is, you know, not everyone can exercise. Some people have bodies with conditions or disabilities. And it turns out that any physiological stress that's safe can do something similar. So that includes hyperthermia, sauna, or cold, cold exposure, or even extreme breathing. So there's a lot of contemplative practices that use the body in this way to change the mind. And so much of our nervous system is in the body. So it's just another whole tool. You know, I think we prioritize or we tend to focus on meditation and mind techniques as the only method or the predominant method for improving our mental health and our stress response. But using the body also is really powerful and maybe even easier for many people. Yeah, I love your focus on the body. And I think it's such a great example of embodied mind, right? The fact that it's just one system and we can get at it from multiple input points. You were just talking about um, hypothermia and it's reminding me of your meeting and interacting with Wim Hof, who is also known as the Iceman. <laughs> um, and I was fortunate enough, I don't know when that was, maybe five years ago, we were at a, a meeting together and a group of us, you kind of led us in this breathing practice um, that I think you learned from him. So do you want to talk about any of uh, those practices? Yes. Meeting Wim Hof was very fortuitous because I had been looking for other techniques besides exercise to study in this way of increasing hormetic stress in the body. And when I heard him speak at a conference, he talked about the emotional benefits. And I knew that there was some research showing there were also some immune benefits of his method. So he has really pushed the limit in exposing his body to ice, ice water for prolonged periods, as well as to extreme breathing, some hyperventilation and some breath retention and cycles of that. Something a bit like tumor breathing, but different. And we know that Tibetan monks are able to control their autonomic nervous system with tumor breathing. They're able to increase their body temperature eight degrees mm. with tumor breathing. And that's just an example of what we can do with our mind and our mind-body practices that we pretty much ignore. And so I was just so excited to see a practice that might turn down the inflammaging, the chronic increase of inflammation that we get with aging. And we also get that with chronic stress mm. and depression. And so we've been testing it in different studies. And so far, what we have found is that, well, first of all, it's not that easy. Not many people choose cold showers, <laughs> ice, or breath holding. Yes, it sounds very unpleasant. <laughs> but if people stick with it, 
they really do show benefits. It's been as powerful as exercise or meditation in our studies for depression. And one thing unique about it, and this wouldn't be too surprising if you've done it, is that it really boosts positive emotions that day. Hmm. And so when in our daily diary studies, when we're comparing different methods, like slow breathing, Wim Hof breathing, we find that the extreme breathing, the Wim Hof breathing, leads to more positive emotions at night for the whole experiment, the three-week experiment. So that's mm. pretty exciting for yeah. people who feel like they, they really need that boost. It's, it's energizing. It kind of, it can make you feel elated. I know you've also done some pretty incredible work on telomeres, uh, which are a cellular marker of aging. Can you talk about some of that and maybe, you know, first just explain what telomeres are? And then um, I know you've had some interesting results with meditation. Yes, that's been a very interesting chapter. When I was a postdoc here at UCSF, I got very interested in wanting to measure biological aging before we're old. So really looking into the cell and saying, well, what, what tracks age? What can change in children even? And so that led me to Elizabeth Blackburn. Mm -hmm. She is a Nobel laureate who discovered telomeres and telomerase, this aging system. Telomeres are these caps that sit at the ends of chromosomes and protect them. And as we age, they shorten. But they're also very sensitive to the biochemical environment, to the stress chemicals in our blood. So this led me to conversations with her to ask, could it be that our mind state can influence our telomeres? And that was a lot to ask mm. of a basic biologist. And her answer was great, which was, wow, we don't even know what genetics control this telomere telomerase system yet, but I'm always convinced by data. So she kind of opened the door to this exploration together, which lasted for about 15 years. And we still add it to some of our studies, but at the beginning, everything was new and exciting. And the question was, wow, do mind states affect telomeres and telomerase? Does depression, does acute stress? And can we reverse engineer that? Does meditation, yoga, breathing, can these influence the cell aging system? So we and other people have done many studies by now, and we do have some questions and some things that we agree on as a field. One thing about telomeres is that they change over years. And when they get too short, the cell dies or becomes inflamed. Mm. And so you want to protect them. And the way we protect them is through this enzyme telomerase, keeping telomerase high and inflammation low. And then also mitochondria are very connected to telomeres. They're right next to them in the cell, next to the nucleus. And they talk to each other through chemical signals. So when the mitochondria batteries in our cell get old and worn out, they start leaking free radicals or oxidative stress, and that wears down the telomeres. But the mm. opposite happens too. When the telomeres go into distress, they send signals to the mitochondria that wears them down. So we have these interconnected cell aging systems that turn out to be very sensitive to our distress, our chronic stress depression and almost every other psychiatric disorder is associated with shorter telomeres. And we've now also found that chronic stress is associated with dampened 
mitochondrial activity or enzymes. So no wonder we're so exhausted when we're under <laughs> chronic stress. I was going to ask, so the telomerase, you mentioned that enzyme, it repairs or it relengthens kind of the telomeres, right? Right. Uh, which then has these protective effects. Yeah. Does the telomerase also, because you were just mentioning the interaction between uh, the mitochondria and the telomeres and the DNA, does the telomerase have any effect on mitochondrial health or activity? Is that known? That is a great question. And my colleague, Jelen, and I just published a paper, and she went very deep on how part of this enzyme is also protecting the mitochondria. So they are definitely connected through telomerase. And telomerase turns out to be more interesting to study than telomeres because it changes within a day. So when we stress people out, their telomerase increases. And it's, you know, it's saying, get your defenses up, you know, there's trouble here, there's danger, let's protect the cell. So there's been many studies on meditation showing that telomerase can increase acutely over weeks or mm. months from meditation studies. And there's been small meta-analyses showing that mindfulness meditation boosts telomerase. And then there have been some null studies, and they're always there's always a mix, but I would say that in general, there are are more studies than not showing that mind-body practices can boost telomerase enzyme as well as the gene expression related to telomeres and telomerase. We did a one-week study with TM meditation at one of Deepak Chopra's retreats, and telomerase boosted in the experienced meditators, but not the novice meditators. And that's something that others have found looking at other cell aging mechanisms, that if you're experienced and you're going into a day-long meditation or a retreat, you benefit more, the trained mind. Yeah, is the idea that um, because you have the experience, you can kind of more quickly get to those more beneficial states? I think that's it. And when I think back to that retreat we studied, what you see with novices is, wow, tears, angst. I mean, it's the first time that they've stripped away all the stimulation of work and phone and really looked inward. So often for people with trauma, especially those first retreats can be hard. Yeah, that makes sense. It is, um, it's definitely worth remembering that a first retreat or a really deep dive into these practices is often really stressful because mm -hmm. there's a, a lot that you aren't normally looking at, right? You're kind mm -hmm. of keeping under the surface that then is revealed. Exactly. It's a process. And it is, when we do something like breathing, we can immediately feel benefits and relax. But mind training, meditation really is layers and layers, I think, of, of exploration and, and learning about the mind. And so it's not always pleasant right at first. Mm. But back to the telomeres. Now, we have focused on them a lot they don't change quickly. So they're not the best marker for short-term studies like contemplative practices. Although cross-sectional studies have found meditators tend to have longer telomeres. Rather than just focus on telomeres these days, it's really this cell aging system that we like to think about. And for example, epigenetic clocks, inflammation, telomeres and mitochondria, they are all associated with premature aging or worsening with chronic stress. But so far in intervention studies, lifestyle or meditation, there is some malleability, there is some improvement. And we're just not great at measuring these things in blood because blood cells are mixed and it change. And 
mixed types. And so it's not a very easy outcome to study. But the way I think about it is that the cell is agnostic to the type of practice. And what it's detecting is a very rudimentary, evolutionarily based chronic stress soup or chronic stress <sighs> state. And that could be produced by our mind. It could be produced by junk food. Mm. And conversely, it's also detecting when the biochemical environment is telling the cell there is safety, when we're feeling support and love, that is a different biochemical soup. That is us turning off threat signals, possibly turning on other chemicals, more serotonin in the brain, possibly more oxytocin. The cell is able to move into more repair mode. So I have my own favorite contemplative practices, but as a researcher, I'm very agnostic to the practices that we study because underlying most contemplative practices are similar changes. So for example, almost all mind-body practices that are calming and relaxing are creating rhythmic, slower breathing, mm -hmm. which leads to higher levels of vagal tone and the parasympathetic nervous system. And that is, just says so much right there. It's like, oh, you know, find what you love that you want to make a habit because they're all helping our body in similar ways. I love your emphasis on safety. I really do think that's such the core of our nervous system, right? Is kind of what we're always detecting and um, in a state of safety, we have access to resources, uh, I suppose, is, is kind of how it feels. And then we can use those resources to repair and do these other things that our bodies need to do to take care. Um, I've never thought about the idea of like cellular safety, you know, so I love that thinking about what the cell is detecting are these chemical messengers of, of safety or not. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to think about food or, you know, sugar, and those kinds of things that cause inflammation uh, in our bodies then get interpreted right in the same way. It's just the, the final common path there of like, is it safe? Is it not safe? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love that, Wendy cellular safety. <laughs> so some of the common path is the inflammation and oxidative stress. And psychological stress can really dysregulate the levels of cortisol that our cells see. So there are different stress signatures, but when it really comes down to it, there are really similar effects. And the idea of cell safety is really important because the cell needs to know, when can I clean up? When can I restore? When is house cleaning time? <laughs> <laughs> and so sleep. Sleep is one of our most precious and important restorative times. But sleep is not always restorative if we're going to bed with a ruminative mind, if we're still holding vigilance. So I think that practices during the day, particularly before bed, can really help our quality of sleep. And there's certainly been studies showing that. And deep sleep, which is the deepest restorative state that we can have when really the brain does its own cleaning uh, with slow wave sleep, with this kind of 
pulses of cerebral spinal fluid, that clean out amyloid. We want more of that deep sleep. And that's not going to come unless certain conditions are in place. We need to respect our circadian rhythm, but we also need to feel safe that we Mm. can go into deep sleep. So we're studying that now. We're studying that with aura rings and we're really interested in Um, there's got to be predictors of deep sleep beyond sleep deprivation. And if you look at the literature, there aren't any known predictors of how much deep sleep we get besides aging and sleep debt. Right, right. And what about also maybe not sleep itself, but ways that we can induce a deep restful state while we're still awake? Mm -hmm. That feels like it overlaps into the contemplative space as well. I am really curious about how much of that deep rest people get. I mean, if you're a meditator, you usually get that. Depends on the sitting, but (laughs) um, that could be a daily practice. But for other people, where do most people get deep states of rest while they're awake? Right. What about for you, Wendy? Yeah, it's it's not a common experience. It definitely has to be an intentional and, you know, fairly contrived situation, right? Like Mm -hmm. uh, resting at the end of a yoga class or sitting practice or, yeah, you have to really make an effort. (laughs) Exactly. It's contrived. It doesn't just happen. So we think of, you know, maybe leisure things, you know, sitting, watching a movie or something. Those are relaxation activities, but they're not the same. They're not setting the conditions for seclusion, really letting go. The body knows the difference. So it does seem like we don't value that type of restoration or deep rest during daily life. We certainly have trouble making time for it. But that's why I think mind-body practices are so special because they will do that for us. And nature can do some of that too for us when we're immersed in nature. Mm. It's making me think of a, a study that you did comparing a retreat, like a meditation retreat to a vacation at the same retreat center. Do you want to share um, those results? Yeah, that study was full of surprises. That was a fun study. So we were invited to a retreat center where people were randomized. Well, we, we put out an ad and said, you know, spend a week at this San Diego retreat center And you may be randomized to meditation or you may be randomized to vacation. (laughs) And I got so many phone calls saying, is this a scam? Are you serious? (laughs) (laughs) I'm signing up if you're, yeah, Yeah. if you're serious about this, I'm signing up. So we had a lot of interest (laughs) and we included people who had never meditated and we randomized them to either staying at the resort, but they had to leave their computer behind. They had to really promise not to work and to have a vacation. They had some health lectures, you know, something kind of boring, but took up their time. And then the other group was randomized into eight hours a day of self-reflection practices. This was the study led by Deepak Chopra and his colleagues. And they had, well, everyone was eating an Ayurvedic diet. So that was one factor. This was not a normal week. But by the end of the week, when we looked at their blood, we found literally dramatic differences in Mm. what their cells were creating in the gene expression. And machine learning could identify with over 90% accuracy whether someone was on day one or day seven. Wow. Regardless of whether they were doing the meditation? Well, that was the surprise finding. (laughs) It was regardless. Like, go to vacation, true vacation, restful vacation, 
is magical. We need it. It's really doing its job. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's fascinating because I think what this shows, such an important aspect of that is the kind of unplugging, right? Um, So, but often we go on vacation and we're still with our phones or, you know, we check email or whatever. (laughs) And so it's not, I think, like you were saying, a real quote unquote or true vacation where you really are disconnected. Mm-hmm. And that's also very rare. You know, that's a very contrived situation. Right. And people have different preferences. So like, I would love to go to a retreat or a spa for vacation. And my husband would love to go to an interesting city. So <laughs> yeah, it's um, it depends on what your goal is, really. In this retreat study, we did find a difference between those who meditated and those who had a relaxing vacation. And the difference showed up in the long run. So we followed them. And 10 months later, we again measured well-being, vitality, stress, depression. And those who had learned how to meditate maintained their benefits. Mm. So a week later, everyone felt fabulous. And they were high in mindfulness. It didn't matter which group they were in. They were high in vitality. They They had dramatic decreases in depression. But the gains were maintained in those who had meditated. And so the question really is, what lasted? They weren't continuing to meditate every day as a group. Some were, but there were some mental shifts, some insights about the mind that stayed with them. Mm. So that was the beautiful, exciting finding. And this was especially prevalent in those who had early trauma. So they benefited even more. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Your work is so impressive and vast. It's reminding me of another study that we spoke about, your body of work on um, glucose. And you have a study, I think, that was from a while ago on uh, low-income pregnant women. And now it's been so long that you actually have longitudinal data on that, as well as on the babies that those women were pregnant with at the time. Do you want to share some of those findings? Yes, that was one of my favorite studies. We wanted to see if mindful stress reduction and also changing how we eat, mindful eating and some nutrition education could help both the moms and then their babies. And so we invited moms who were already overweight. They were a very diverse sample and a low-income sample. And we gave them an eight-week class together, and we compared them to similar women who had treatment as usual, so there was no group of them. And what we found was after the eight weeks, the moms who had had the mindfulness group had, as expected, real improvements in their emotional well-being. So they had decreases in depression, increases in acceptance, vitality, Then, because we were following the babies, my colleague, Nikki Bush, who kept assessing the babies every year, kept assessing the emotional well-being of the moms and the benefits that we thought would last till the class ended or maybe till they gave birth, maintained every single year. And now, at eight years later, we still see this gap in depression. Mm. So the control moms have significantly higher depression than the moms who got the mindfulness training. And that has just blown us away because to think that a short-term class would have lasting effects years later just emphasizes how critical it is to be sharing these skills. And I think the group was part of it, the support, but it also helped the baby. So 
we've been looking at the baby's health, the baby's nervous system regulation, and they had less medical visits, less adiposity rebound or weight gain in their early years. And so we're really excited that if we can help moms during pregnancy, this really sensitive and literally critical period, it's having positive benefits for two generations. That is amazing. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, we were talking before about our nervous systems and how they're so attuned to uh, safety. And I think about that a lot with with young children and kind of when we come into the world, that's like the basic thing that we are sensing or not. And mm -hmm. I've just been thinking a lot more um, in this field, what is like a sensitive nervous system or, you know, there's individual differences and then there's all these factors that can play into that, right? Um, childhood adversity and all of that. I don't quite even know how to frame this question, but uh, a friend asked me recently, what does that mean to have a sensitive nervous system? Uh, so can you reflect on that at all, um, how you think about that? Yes, I feel like that's a really important difference we need to respect. We really have different baselines coming out of the womb, really. Mm -hmm. These are differences that are genetic, that are shaped by our prenatal experience. We know that. And then we have this childhood period where we're shaped by events in a more synergistic way. So for example, early adversity we know is related to worse health and early mortality, but it's also related to early biological aging right then and there in childhood. Greater inflammation, shorter telomeres, and that tracks throughout life. The beauty is that our biology is so elastic and that whatever we do each day is protective. And so even if we start off life with short telomeres, we can lead a lifestyle that's promoting telomerase and promoting that safety calibration, giving us all those safety messages so that we're protecting our cells and our cells are actually not being shaped from a life of adversity, even if they predicted a life of adversity. So there's a theory called life history theory, and that is that if we are exposed to early trauma, our biology says, uh-oh, we had better speed up development and aging so that we can get to reproduction sooner. We can reproduce and we can survive. Hmm. So there's a lot of evidence that that happens. Early adversity leads to early puberty and early aging, including shorter telomeres. But yet there's still plasticity and we can interrupt that process at any moment. And that's why so many people with early adversity benefit so much from finding contemplative practices, from having a meditation practice. So the way I think about it, Wendy, is that their brains have been extremely responsive to this threatening environment by creating exaggerated threat sensitivity. Mm. So when normal, stressful things happen, their alarm goes off twice as loud. And we find that in our studies, we use these daily diary studies and we measure how much people feel threatened or challenged from their daily events. And people who have had more early trauma view typical stressful events as more threatening. They feel there's more at stake for them. And that's partly why I think that these practices of mindfulness, breathing, contemplative practices, whatever they are, yoga, they are like medicine for people with this hypersensitive threat sensitivity. Yeah, thank you. That's so helpful to think about that way. And it, I guess it also makes sense, right, for these people who have experienced adversity or trauma 
everyday stressors may well be, at least from their body's perspective, um, it would be advantageous for them to perceive those things as perhaps more dangerous. Is that how you think about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's adaptive. And we know there's neuroplasticity, so we can, we can tamp that right. down a bit. But I like to think of it as there's primary appraisal, the body's going to have its automatic reaction, and then there's secondary appraisal. Then there's, you know, what do we do next? And that's where the respect of our differences comes in. We may never be able to get rid of that startle response or that jolt that we have been wired for, yet there is so much comfort and self-care that we can find so that we don't, you know, stab ourselves with that second arrow and let that threat response continue. Right. When we think about threat stress and how that can be like a dark cloud living over us and, I mean, stress is just so common. We all experience more stress than we want. And one thing that is a casualty is that it rules out our full capacity to see joy, to see the miracles mm. of life that are right in front of us. And so while we focus so much on reducing stress, another way that we can focus our energy is on improving our emotional well-being and really focusing our attention on gratitude and on things that bring us joy. And that kind of circumvents the stress response. So that's a newer way that research has really been capitalizing on joy science or happiness science. And again, I feel like so much of that is already there right in front of us in Buddhist mm -hmm. wisdom, that true happiness is not from circumstances, from acquiring, from achieving, but really from noticing what we have, from the beauty of life, from the inherent goodness, if we can feel it in ourselves. Yeah. And have you done um, some work recently on uh, like gratitude practices and those kinds of things to help increase those positive emotional states? We've had this really fun experiment. There is a film Mission Joy with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu that is about their struggles and is really about how they have created purpose, mm. joy, and meaning through their adversity. And they wanted the documentary maker, Peggy Callahan, to not just share their story, but share happiness, find some way to spread happiness through science. And so she came to me and asked, could we launch a huge citizen science study where we share some of these joy practices? And so many of us got together and with the UC Berkeley Greater Good Science Center have developed a seven-day program where people can try gratitude or awe or reframing, some of these practices that we know we get a boost of positive affect. And if people then learn about their mind and decide to try it again and again, it can be really meaningful. So I love gratitude. I will say that gratitude has been the most powerful practice in our study so far. It's like an antidote to stress. So when we are having things happen that we don't want. It's so easy to focus on trying to change them and wishing things were different. Whereas gratitude just shifts everything where we're focusing on what is right, what we do have, what we feel appreciative for. Yeah, it's almost like you can't process both of those things at the same time, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And what about you? Do you have any practices for, you know, feeling gratitude or joy? 
Oh, I love gratitude practices. I've done lots over the years of different like gratitude journaling or, you know, texting someone three things a day, you know, that you're grateful for. And um, it really it does, you know, if you do it consistently, I found it, it really does shift your mindset mm-hmm. to get used to being grateful, you know, and you notice things more. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely can be a habit or a mindset. And I'm curious if you, if you don't mind me asking, Wendy, I know that um, you have been a deep explorer and a dedicated practitioner of many different types of, of meditation. And I'm just curious, like how you view stress and if you view yourself as a high stress person and you know, what's mm, helped you? That's a great question. Um, I think as I've gotten older, I've either become more aware, maybe through practice and other things, or I'm becoming more sensitive. <laughs> um, but at least I've become more aware of how sensitive my nervous system is in a way that I, you know, I think in my younger years, I had a pretty like, I don't know if tough demeanor would be the word, but a little bit of a, a impervious and... Um, yeah, have just the layers of the onion, like you were saying, realizing how much of that was actually my attempt to protect my <laughs> my sensitivities. So yeah, it's been a real journey coming to become familiar with that and acceptance of that and, you know, working with those. I think you've studied a lot also with Sokni Rinpoche, who is one of my favorite teachers, and he has that wonderful handshake practice it's basically, yeah, just training you to approach your emotions or fears or whatever might arise with such a warm acceptance and allowing those to be there, letting them share what their wisdom is, you know, mm-hmm. instead of pushing them away. That's been pretty transformative. It is. It's it's absolutely profound just in that one practice. There's so much wisdom in it. And we could be doing that every day, you know, to train ourselves away from that, that secondary stress response to actually welcome and learn from our emotions, our unwanted emotions. Well, gosh, this has been so great. And um, our time is ticking away. I, I just wanted to touch on I know you have a, a new book called The Stress Prescription. Um, so I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to chat a little bit about that. You were kind enough to send me an advanced copy. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It covers so much actually of what we've spoken yeah. about today. Really accessible um, synthesis of so much science and research in these areas, along with actionable practices that you can do um, and integrate into your your life, both mindset shift and working with the body and all of this. So kudos and thank you so much for all of the work that went into that. I think it's an amazing resource. Um, thank you, Wendy. That means so much to me to hear that from you. Yeah. Do you want to share anything about uh, an overview of the book? I would love to. I really, really hope that it helps people. There are strategies from the body, from the mind, from just changing our mindset, how we think about stress, that can really help. And for me, all of it involves mindfulness. 
mindfulness is the flashlight we need to turn on first to say, what are we thinking? You know, and can we look at that? Can we question that? Can we check in with our body and see what's there? It all takes metacognition. And so I've tried to bring that in in a secular, gentle way to help people both ask these questions of themselves and then try these practices that are, I would say, both contemplative as well as secular. I'm sure if we trace the roots, you know, so many of them are probably ancient wisdom traditions. You know, one of them is immersion in nature and um, others are breathing and and body-based strategies. And then some are really just about the mindset of really understanding what is your worldview? Do you expect control and certainty? Or can you actually lean back and be comfortable with not knowing? So it's very much influenced by my teachers, by colleagues, people I've learned from in the mind and life community, and then some you know, Western psychology experiments. So it's kind of a, a mix or an integration of all of those. And I just hope that it can help people. I think we have such a crisis of poor mental health, especially among our youth. And we have such huge existential stressors, global stressors. So we talked about the uncertainty in life, but we also have volatile uncertainty, dramatic changes in the global world that we are seeing that we know will come to us more and more frequently, like climate events. And we're just not that well equipped to see all of that news and stay Mm. hopeful And so we need these practices. We need to work on our inner peace, and then we can help each other and work outward for social change. And I love the Dalai Lama's quote that inner peace, ease of mind, is the best medicine. And so just starting there and realizing we can't do much when we're feeling really threatened and we can't even see reality clearly or connect with people. So really just starting with just the importance of my mental health really matters. I don't need to go through the next year feeling this blanket of stress every day. That's my hope. And the best medicine, not only for us, but then it it spreads, right? I think that if we can retune our own nervous systems, that there's a way that that's kind of contagious in in a really good way. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. And we know that from the lab, from dyadic studies, we're really influencing each other's nervous systems, non-verbally even. And you're pointing us to probably the big shift we need to make in contemplative science. How do we transmit and share our wisdom, our love? And so just even thinking of gratitude practices, we tend to study it as make a list, think about it. But what about expressing it publicly? So I'll take this opportunity to just say, Wendy, I have learned so much from you over so many years, and I'm so grateful to you. And I, both our friendship and also the wisdom you've shared. And through this podcast, I've loved every one of them. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Alyssa. It's really, the feeling is absolutely mutual. Uh, We met years ago on a retreat. We were randomly placed together as roommates, and it was (laughs) such a lucky day for me. And um, I've just been amazed and inspired by all of your work and I'm so grateful that you're in the world and we've been able to cross paths in all these ways. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you for for all of your work and and thank you for taking the time today to chat with us. It's been my pleasure and honor. Thank you. 
This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.